Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Welcome back, everyone, to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio on a Monday. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. And as we were talking uh, before the break, you know, we, we've heard a lot of late about the common good uh, and what people are willing to sacrifice and do for the common good. Uh, I had uh, one of my, my good friends and colleagues, former associate uh, Mike Conley, who's the uh, deputy chief of staff to Senator Mike Lee, uh, sent me a, a piece uh, this last week that uh, really struck a chord with me. Uh, it's by Matthew Continetti, and uh, Matthew, of course, is with the American Enterprise Institute. He is a resident fellow there. Uh, he's uh, known in many circles as a, as a journalist, as an analyst, as an author. Uh, and uh, this piece that he wrote was in the uh, Washington Free Beacon. And uh, Matt, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So tell us just a, uh, give us just a little background sketch uh, on this piece, and uh, I think it's going to be an interesting debate uh, both now and particularly when we get to the other side of the uh, curve, so to speak, in terms of where we go next as a society. Right. Well, uh, even before the coronavirus uh, pandemic arrived on our shores, uh, conservatives had been debating what it meant to have a common good politics or a common good conservatism. And I think that uh, the coronavirus shows the, that there really is such a thing as the common good. We are, we are thinking about our common public health. We're, we're thinking about uh, our, our health security as a nation, not just our national security. We're thinking about things other than our private interests. Um, but the question then remains is, well, what kind of common good? And this is where I think uh, the debate will be among conservatives and republicans in the years ahead yeah it was interesting you yeah you let off your article talking about uh, some of the things that rick santorum was talking about back in 2005 uh you mentioned uh, some some comments uh, made not too long ago by senator marco rubio out of florida uh, in terms of how do we balance all of these things and then what is what does that look like moving forward right um you know rick santorum uh, actually subtitled uh, his 2005 book it takes a family uh, about uh, with the reference to the common good. Marco Rubio brought this uh, topic up in a high-profile speech to Catholic University last year, and uh, I think it is out of a lot of um, currents within Catholicism that the idea of a, a common good arises. Something that is that includes the good of all the members of a society, of a society but also uh, kind of transcends each individual and, and kind of has the good of the community as a whole. I think the real debate is over 
what role does government play yeah. in uh, achieving the common good? And here, uh, there's a wide spectrum of opinion among conservatives. There are a growing number of especially younger conservatives, um, including some in the Senate, are more willing to use government uh, to um, pursue the common good in things like um, industrial policy or trust-busting. Uh, and then there are other conservatives, uh, of whom I'm one, uh, who say that, you know, the truth is, in a society like of ours, we really need to stress the intermediary institutions, the, the associations that lie in between the individual and the state. Uh, those are the best ways of, of pursuing the common good, things like families, churches, neighborhoods. Yeah, I think that's going to be such a, a fascinating thing, because on, on one hand, you do uh, have kind of the old... Uh, Barney Frank, you know, what what we do together, that's what we call government uh, versus a, a place like Utah where we have a, a strong free market economy. We have great institutions of civil society, uh, even where, you know, we're not just, uh, you know, faith groups and volunteer organizations, but businesses that give back to the community and, and are invested in community. How do you see that debate playing out? Well, I think if you were to look at um, states and kind of rank them by social capital, you know, the kind of the um, patterns of um, reinforcing uh, uh, mutually beneficial behaviors, Utah would rank high. And um, I think it kind of provides us a guide for the type of society we want to create. And if you look at Utah, of course, you see um, uh, high levels of intact families. You see uh, active religious denomination. Uh, you see uh, in, uh, voluntary associations and civic organizations. All of these things work together, I think, to produce the common good. And, of course, government is involved, but government doesn't necessarily have the, um, the responsibility for everything. You know, one lesson from history is the more responsibilities government takes on, the less well it does in pursuing any of them. Um, and so we need to recognize there's a space for society um, as well as the individual and as well as the government. Uh, while we try to pursue the common good. Uh, I think that's that's so vital. If you're just joining us, we have Matthew Continetti, uh, who is a resident fellow at American Enterprise Institute, uh, also just a, a great writer and a tremendous thinker. And, uh, you know, as you were going through that, the, the idea that uh, the more government takes on, the less effective it is at doing that. Uh, and then it also sort of atrophies the uh, the that social capital muscle uh, within societies uh, where I think things actually get done a little bit better. Oh, well, of course. I mean, we see um, that when government assumes the responsibilities of not only individuals, but also these um, intermediary institutions like the family, um, the, the, uh, society atrophies, you know, and it changes the ethos, the, the, the culture of an entire society. And so we've begun to look toward government for everything and for all the answers when it really can't supply the answers. Um, and unfortunately, though, we're not, in a, and we're not in a moment now where we're thinking about trying to pare back government responsibilities. <laughs> right. um, if anything, we're adding to them yeah. uh, because of all these severe dislocations that the uh, pandemic has brought, us, brought on. Yeah, and I want to I want to ask you about that in terms of what we are adding. There was a uh, I found it a little stunning uh, a, a uh, editorial in the New York Times uh, late last week, uh, and you know basically saying, well, we just we just need government to do it all. 
and sort of abdicate everything to the government. And uh, and and yet in this kind of environment, a lot of people are saying, oh, yeah, maybe maybe they should do that. I think, right, we've seen uh, the American people quickly reach a conclusion by an overwhelming majority that the coronavirus is a serious threat. Uh, to their to their lives, to the lives of their family members, um, and that's both in terms of health as well as economics. And so now the question becomes, well, what you know, how do we respond? And I think there's a real interesting uh, debate to be had between individual measures, you know, hand washing, practicing social distancing, wearing masks, and such, and then kind of the more collective measures, which include the widespread uh, quarantines or the um, canceling of school years months before their scheduled ends, <clears throat> which will be most more effective in the end. Unfortunately, we just really have no idea at the moment because this disease is so new and it seems so infectious um, in ways that scientists haven't really come to understand, at least by my reading of the news, um, that I think we've adopted a kind of let's throw everything at the wall right. <laughs> type approach. And once we've done that, then we have to throw more things at the wall because of these tremendous, uh, horrible job losses in all these sectors. So yeah. um, this, this is going to have not only a, a public health impact, but an economic impact. It will also have a social impact that we're just beginning to recognize. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you raised it because I don't think very many people are really talking through what's the long-term social impact uh, of this, we're, we're we're starting to get the economic thing because it's it's hitting us right between the eyes and uh, is going to get more challenging in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, but how do you see it playing out then in, in terms of that social impact for the long haul? Well, I always like to look at these core institutions, um, and to some extent, at least for the nuclear family, coronavirus may be strengthening it uh, to in the sense that. Parents are being um, forced to spend time with their children, even educating their children, having more of an active role. There is a, some disconcerting data, though, showing, at least out of China, that these uh, lockdowns led to an increase in divorces. So um, I'm not terribly excited about that aspect of it if it comes true in America. Um, we know that um, in pandemic situations, or certainly situations of economic recession, um, uh, drug and alcohol use uh, ticks up. There are more suicides. So these are terrible impacts. Uh, and then, of course, like the just the kind of emotional toll of being separated um, from your extended family, right? Um, and, and much less your your friend networks. Uh, that is something that's hard to quantify. But I, I know that it's um, deeply disruptive. And then, of course, I look at the church. Uh, and I see just you just look at the Easter celebrations and how they were affected by uh, coronavirus. And you wonder um, if many uh, faith um, um, institutions were not going into this crisis as strong as they could be. And I think it's going to test them as well. And um, I really just don't know how they'll uh, how they'll hold up. Um, so if you just look at the family and the church, you begin to see how this will have real um, real consequences and, and not not all positive ones. Yeah, wow, fascinating stuff. Uh, Matthew Continetti joining us from American Enterprise Institute, a great thinker, uh, really one of the thought leaders out there in the country today. Uh, Matthew, thanks so much for joining us on Inside Sources today. We'll, we'll have you back. We need to continue this conversation.
All right. Again, that's uh, Matthew Continetti from American Enterprise Institute. Uh, and if you happen to miss any any part of that insight, it, uh, one, it's a great uh, article on the Washington Free Beacon. You can check it out there. Also, make sure you just uh, check out the podcast. You can do that either at uh, ksl.com or uh, make sure you've got downloaded uh, the KSL News Radio app, uh, powered by our friends at Any Hour Services, so you can always get the app uh, and, and the podcast there as well. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside for a bottom of the hour news break. When we come back, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia John Huntsman Jr. joins us here on KSL News Radio. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.